Dang it. My writer's on strike. Okay. Open chat GPT. Prompt. Write a short, humorous, and intellectual podcast introduction to Michael Bay's Armageddon and comment on the fact that it's in the Criterion Collection. Ah, okay, here we go. Welcome, esteemed listeners, to the Criterion Chat. I'm Matt Peterson, joined by Nate Myers. We're the erudite hosts ready to engage your intellect and tickle your funny bones. Today, we embark on a captivating topic, Michael Bay's Armageddon and its perplexing presence within the revered Criterion Collection. Now, for those of you who don't know, the Criterion Collection is renowned for its carefully curated selection of highbrow cinema, the kind of movies that make you raise your pinky finger as you sip your Earl Grey tea. But how on earth did a movie about drilling into an asteroid to save the world end up rubbing elbows with the likes of Ingmar Bergman and Federico Fellini? I mean, come on, this is the same Michael Bay who brought us Transformers and more explosions on the 4th of July. Now, don't get me wrong, I love a good explosion as much as the next guy, but it's like inviting a bull to a china shop and asking it to dance gracefully with the fine porcelain. So, let's speculate on how this jaw-dropping decision came about. Maybe it was a dare. Picture it, a bunch of Criterion Collection bigwigs sitting in a fancy conference room discussing the merits of French New Wave cinema when someone jokingly suggests, hey, let's throw Armageddon into the mix just to see what happens. And lo and behold, nobody had the guts to say, wait, seriously? Or perhaps it's a hidden masterpiece, and we've all been missing the subtle nuances of drilling rigs and Aerosmith ballads. Maybe there's an underlying metaphor here, where the asteroid represents the human condition, and Bruce Willis's character symbolizes the indomitable spirit of humanity. Nah, who am I kidding? It's probably just a colossal, hilarious mistake. But hey, who am I to judge? Art is subjective. And if Michael Bay's explosive extravaganza can provide a respite from the constant chin-stroking and deep intellectual contemplation of art house cinema, then maybe it has found its place among the Criterion elites. So, grab your popcorn, buckle up, and get ready for a hilarious roller coaster ride as we dissect the mind-boggling inclusion of Armageddon in the Criterion Collection. And remember, dear listeners, in the realm of cinema, even the most unexpected inclusions can provoke thought and laughter in equal measure. So Nate, uh, just a little writer's strike joke uh, mixed with an AI joke. So that, that's a real, uh, real output from ChatGPT with with some minor edits. So I, I, I thought uh... I was tr- I was wondering how much was that you doing something versus actually got something from Chat ChatGPT. I yeah I actually ran that through and I, a little bit of tweaking, a little bit of editing, but. Uh, uh, I, I thought it would be appropriate on many levels to, to go with something a little different here. Um, so, yeah, Armageddon, here we go. Uh, I suppose it had to be done at some point. We've, we've touched on Michael Bay before with our discussion of The Rock, and we've even gone through 
the the opus that is Pearl Harbor on our ill-fated YouTube show, Deep Focus. But still uh, available for anybody who wants to check it out. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I'm I'm still proud of that conversation. Uh, but but here we are at Armageddon, and uh, there's a lot of directions we could take this. You know, I've got a a few discussion topics, but who knows where this is going to go. Let's just throw it to you, Nate. You know, our, our usual opening question. Well, we can get into Michael Bay in general, but let's just talk about Armageddon. You know, your your first exposure to it, your personal history with this film. You know, let's uh, let's bring back the memories here. I think it's worth noting just right off the top for everybody that this is part of a crossover episode with our other podcast, The Silver Screenings. Yeah. Uh, we're doing Armageddon here on the Criterion Chat in its 25th anniversary. And then uh, this month we're also doing Deep Impact over on the Silver Screenings, also celebrating its 25th anniversary. They were the two asteroid or comet movies uh, that came out in 1998. And so we kind of are maybe going to do a little bit of compare and contrast a bit in this conversation as well and hopefully grow the audience for our new podcast. Uh, get some people who are listening to the Criterion Chat over there to listen to the Silver Screenings and subscribe and follow us. So, obviously, anybody who's listening to us, I encourage you, when we also post for Deep Impact, check that episode out. Uh, go right now, subscribe to the Silver Screenings, uh, and leave us reviews. We love to hear what people think, and if you have any movie recommendations, we would love to hear them. Uh, but with regard to Armageddon, uh, Matt, I'm going to take a little bit of, you asked ChatGPT to write about Armageddon. Uh, I'm going to read to you here two different excerpts from two different reviews. So we have here Roger Ebert's one-star review of Armageddon, and it starts this way. <laughs> here it is at last, the first 150-minute trailer. Armageddon is cut together like its own highlights. Take almost any 30 seconds at random, and you'd have a TV ad. The movie is an assault on the eyes, the ears, the brain, common sense, and the human desire to be entertained. No matter what they're charging to get in, it's worth more to get out. So there's uh, Ebert. <laughs> um, now I'm going to read you. This is the Janine Basinger review that was put into the Criterion liner notes uh, for the DVD release. Despite what you may have heard, Armageddon is a work of art by a cutting-edge artist who is a master of movement, light, color, and shape, and also of chaos, razzle-dazzle, and explosion. It is true that Armageddon... A perfect example of Bay's work illustrates his take-no-prisoners form of storytelling in which he trusts an audience to figure things out. One of its strengths is its minimum of dreadful exposition that overexplains the inevitable pseudoscience. Yes, it gives audiences a lot to absorb. Yes, it cuts quickly from place to place, person to person, event to event. But it is never confusing, never boring, and never less than a brilliant mixture of what movies are supposed to do. So clearly two very different takes on the movie there, Matt. And I think both of them are 100% accurate reads on this film, <laughs> which is one of the things I find most fascinating about it. And maybe that's even one of the things I just find about Michael Bay in general, right? Those, those haters of Michael Bay, and I can be a hater of his at times as well, are not inaccurate in their attacks on his style of filmmaking. At the mm -hmm. same time, those that really enjoy him, and I also can be that as well, are not wrong in what they find enjoyable. He does know what he's doing as a filmmaker. 
even if he seems to be lacking in any sense of restraint or taste, if he doesn't have the kind of qualities that lead to ex- actual excellent storytelling or interesting themes, what he does well, he does extremely well in terms of viscerality. And I think this film is one that, having seen it now, I don't even know how many times, uh, is a, just an endlessly entertaining one for me. A p- big part of my, how I've come to appreciate this movie is from college. It came out when I was in high school, but I think I really didn't start to love it until I was in college. It was it was always on FX, if you remember that cable station. It was just yeah. always seemed to be on at different times. And if I ever had to procrastinate for writing a paper or studying for an exam, I would inevitably go to t- TV, flip through the channels, get to FX, find Armageddon playing. And I'd be like, oh, well, I'll just watch for another half hour, just watch for another half hour. Then all of a sudden it's 1130 and the movie's coming to an end. I'm like, well, I guess now it's time for me to finally get to actually doing my work. So <laughs> I had lots of experience of using it as a procrastinating tool uh, in my in my college days. And now here, uh, 25 years later, I still just really enjoy this movie. And there's, I think... There's not a lot of depth to it, but there is actually some interesting ideas that are being presented in it. I mean, it's obviously a blue collar versus the expert class kind of ethic at certain points. There's definitely a lot of Americana. Uh, It's fascinating to watch this 25 years later after we've had, for example, uh, 9-11 and things of uh, more global scale that really, I think, fundamentally alter the way this movie is told the coronavirus being another thing. Uh, I think that this film is an interesting artifact of its era, but it's just an all-around perfect kind of summer blockbusters popcorn movie. Yeah, I, I, I enjoy this film too. I mean, I'll just put it right out there. It's it's something that is... I, I can see people being endlessly annoyed by it. It's not for everybody. Uh, it, it is really the ultimate example of blockbuster excess right in so many ways but it it remains very watchable it's entertaining it is one of those movies that for me if it comes on it's it's pretty hard to look away uh despite its you know really short attention span uh inducing nature uh but yeah I, i actually saw this in the theater i remember very clearly it was quite effective uh at that time but I do remember being just very, very overwhelmed by the pacing and the editing. And I just had never really seen anything like this, right? It was just I, this, and maybe you can cite uh, an example of another film before this that had this style, but I, I do feel like this film you know, broke new ground stylistically, for better or for worse, just in terms of how how much of an assault it really is on the senses, right? In terms of the, the shot lengths being notoriously extremely short and and 2.3 seconds is the average shot length in this film. Yeah. And, and, you know, maybe this is a a decent transition into just the filmmaking style and Michael Bay, um, who has, whose style has actually kind of morphed throughout the years. Uh, but, this this has an interesting effect. You know, Ebert compared it to to being a, a feature length trailer, and it, in some ways that's true. Uh, but it it does have this weird um, kind of it creates this weird effect through the fast paced editing. 
that your brain is constantly filling in gaps <laughs> for what you're seeing on screen, right? I, I just think about the sequence at the end when they land, and there, there's so many quick shots there. You know, there's there's a quick shot of the shuttle and a quick shot of a of planes flying over and helicopters flying in and and when you're really paying attention there's there's a bunch of stuff that's kind of it's out of continuity you know the the little escape raft slide thing will be down in one shot and then in another one second shot later it'll be just starting to inflate and but it, it doesn't really matter because your, your brain is just picking up on these images so quickly it's it's kind of stitching them together in a way that makes sense. It, it's a it's a strange effect, right? And somehow this this film manages to pull it off. Uh, but it really does infuse this story, which is a ludicrous story, right? Just the idea of training oil drillers <laughs> to be astronauts being within the realm of possibility within two weeks or whatever the time frame is in the film uh, is, is ridiculous. But the, the style, the excess, the, the use of color, um, the cinematography, it just sells it. And, and it has this sort of candy-coated experience to it that, that makes it all palatable and, and entertaining. But uh, just your curious to hear your take on on michael bay's filmmaking either in general or just in this film uh specifically i think there's a lot of hate put out of him now and sometimes retroactively retroactively put back to a film like this at the time this wasn't hated it wasn't liked by critics that's true it was pretty well panned but it was a huge hit it was the biggest hit of the global box office that year it was just a little bit behind saving private ryan for the domestic box office so it was a big hit, and honestly, I don't remember anybody really savaging it. I mean, nobody was saying this was Citizen Kane, but nobody was really... I mean, if you consider it to other blockbusters of that era, something like Independence Day came out just a couple years before, uh, Titanic was about six months before, nobody really looked at this as being wildly out of step with the quality of other blockbusters, right? Uh, people thought of it as being part and parcel to it, Uh the typical kind of experience you'd have. I think that once Michael Bay went down the road of the Transformers films, once the CG became more and more dominant and his camera kept zipping around even more so than this one, and it just became so much visual information because of what you could throw into the CGI, I think that that's when people started to turn on him and his style was no longer restrained by just the mere matter of physics from the, the filmmaking itself, right? Because he just had all these computers that could do so much more than what he could do even when he's doing something as as visceral as this. And I think you make a great point that there are films and there were filmmakers that were doing wildly intense uh, stimulus overload stuff prior to Michael Bay. But if you do look at this movie, say, compared to uh, Independence Day, this is a totally different experience on your senses, right? Yeah. That movie's got a lot of static shots for its visual effects and i get that part of the whole point is you build on technologies and you go okay well if they could do this with just a still shot maybe i can have a zoom or maybe i can have a pan added into it right so there's things like that but this is this is just a wild leap forward over what uh, dean devlin and roland emmerich did uh two years earlier when they blew up the world right 
So I think that Michael Bay is a very uh, intense filmmaker. I mean, not just in terms of the actual way in which he works, which is notoriously quite abrasive, uh, but also just in terms of how he wants to handle his audience, right? Uh, the Rock is his movie before this, I think his best movie. Uh, and also we discussed that, as you alluded to earlier, uh, from the Criterion Collection, because it's also included. And that is also a very intense, fast-paced, keep-going, keep-going, keep-going kind of film. Uh, Bad Boys is a keep-going, keep-going, keep-going kind of film. So he will always make films like this. The problem is he never seems to understand maybe a certain story isn't supposed to be told that way. You know, you think of something like Pain and Gain when he did that. He approached it with the same kind of over-the-top, move-the-camera, edit, 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 edit approach where you have to sometimes just lock down and handle the actual weight of the moment by staying still. And he can't do that. So he's a limited director, I think, but he's what within his range, he can make a really good, well-crafted, fun film. And this movie plays to his strengths, right? It plays to his, his love of uh, sunsets. It plays to his love of helicopters, his love of tech, of style. I mean, the... The way he redesigns NASA. I mean, the control room in this is not at all like NASA. I mean, these are these are yeah. not people who are looking like let's get aesthetic design going on here. They're like they're function. They're, they're engineers. You know, but as I watch this film, I don't give a crap. I mean, I think to myself, yeah, this should look slick. It should look awesome because NASA's great. You know, and everyone's the best at everything they do here. It isn't that cool. You know, and you you get the feels big time in this. Uh, if I can use a phrase from a younger generation here, right? That's what this movie's about. It's about the feels. It's not really about thinking. As soon as you think about anything, it falls apart. But as long as you're willing to let the film guide you and direct you through its own propulsive uh, narrative, you can enjoy it as long as you just let yourself be swept uh, over with all the visual stimulus and auditory st stimulus. Yeah, the, and well, you alluded to the the patriotic quality of the film, and uh, really an admiration for the accomplishments of NASA, right, or the accomplishments of the U.S. government. I think is what uh, Bruce Willis says during that one scene where they're talking about he's asking about the Plan B, and he's you know saying this is the best the U.S. government can come up with. I, Maybe in 1998, that, that played better. Not, nowadays, uh, I think, generally speaking, our, our confidence in the government's probably at an all-time low, but uh, it really does have an aspirational quality to it. It does have a celebratory quality to the capabilities of America as a nation when they work together. But even beyond that, you, you get the sense of this idea of a world community um, really toward the end of the film more than anything. I guess Independence Day took that to another level uh, in terms of countries banding together to, to fight an alien invasion. But I, I think this has a similar spirit uh, in, in some ways too. So th there's a real, I don't want to use the term naive, but... Uh, there, there is a sense of, of patriotism that I think is is very front and center here, and 
I, I do want to mention the writers, uh, kind of going back to the origin of this film. Uh, a lot of writers are involved here, and some big names, too. You know, So the screenplay is credited to Jonathan Hensley and J.J. Uh, Abrams, which I, I think a lot of people forget that he's one of the writers of this. And it does show when you, when you do learn that and you think about it. But you had uh, Tony Gilroy was involved, even had Robert Town involved. So it went through a lot uncredited. of... Uncredited, yeah. Yeah, uncredited. But it went through a lot of iterations. Uh, the fact that Deep Impact was being developed simultaneously uh, affected some things in terms of advertising and and even some additional visual effects that they um, they budgeted to try to set it apart from, from that competing film. But it really, uh, it seemed like they were setting out to do something really big, really different. And um, I, think it, I think it succeeds on that level, right? Uh, whether or not you could say that this has a positive influence on blockbuster cinema is probably a different conversation. Uh, it does sort of usher in that age of short attention span cinema. And, you know, you could say that that's an overall negative, but there, you can't deny that stylistically this film has had a huge impact on cinema. Well, I'd like to point just a little bit about the, the development of the film, and I think this is really inseparable from how to ana- analyze the film, right? It, it's coming in the late 90s, and so it's in that unipolar moment, right? So we have that, that period of time where the United States is the only global power, right? And so there isn't this idea of we have to try to make sure we're considering geopolitics carefully here as we would just even a few years later after 9-11. And then you go, well, okay, hang on. How do we want to present this? Because people are very sensitive about terrorism right now. You You could just blow up parts of New York and have a civilian die on the street but hey, as long as the dog lives, audiences won't care, right? I mean, that's just a, as the, the moment that we have, right? And, and so the film can be executed in a way that it couldn't have been executed, I think, a decade earlier or a decade later. And it's also because of that particular moment of time, uh, it's not interested in a global audience. I mean, obviously they work. They did release it. They made a lot of money elsewhere. But there isn't a sense of, okay, now hang on. We have to have the Chinese government involved, right? They have to have somebody that's a, a, a you know, it's got to be some guy at the Chinese a space station that shows up here to help with this because that will get the Chinese uh, Communist Party to let us mar- release it in their market. And so it's just this very uniquely mom- uh, unique moment in time where America was a dominant, and it is a celebration of American dominance. And I think one of the things it's doing is it's really highlighting the American industry. Now, that it highlights a couple of different aspects of American industry. One of them is the sort of governmental industry, the stuff that would be NASA, uh, the military, uh, sometimes to a point where it's you, you, you have some jokes being made, but also with clearly an admiration. I mean, I, I always laugh uh, whenever the, the plan B is uh, put into effect by the, the colonel who is being told, okay, we're, the president's going to order the nuke be uh, detonated right now. And then all of a sudden these guys just like come right on the elevators yeah. immediately. Like they've been just <laughs> sitting there. They go, again, if you think about it, it makes no sense. But if you're watching it, you feel it 
it just seems right that they just show up in perfect uniform to walk out and to do this thing that they're going to do. Right. So it's one of my, one of my favorite parts actually. (laughs) It's, Oh uh, yeah. There's a lot of parts in this that I really like, but it's also celebrating just that blue collar workman. Right. I mean, so the whole storyline, right. The, the best deep sea driller that they have to get to come and, do this drilling down into the center of the asteroid to blow it up with a nuclear bomb, right? So they go and get Harry Stamper, Bruce Willis, uh, and then his his crew, his uh, eclectic crew of geniuses, but they're unconventional geniuses and hard workers and wild people that are just kind of embodying the American spirit, right? But they're all very clearly not an elite sentimentality, right? They're, yeah, they're, they're, they're misfits. Yeah, well, and they're, they're salt of the earth in their own way, right? And so mm-hmm. that's the film's sympathies, its emphasis is on that common man doing the extraordinary thing, which is a, such an American sentiment, right? I mean, the, you know, the European model would be kind of, well, you have nobility, you have this heritage of chivalry that way. American sensibilities are much more the pull, uh, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps and accomplish things and do this great stuff. And... The film just works. I mean, because it's, I think, completely convinced of its vision of America, its vision of humanity. As superficial as it can be said to be, in its own context, it's very committed to what it's showing uh, that you can't help, I think, but be swept up into it because of the effectiveness. A perfect example of this is the scene with Will Patton who plays Chick, right, the the right-hand man to Bruce Willis. Mm-hmm. And that scene where he goes to his house where his ex-wife and his son are, uh, it's like this wildly, an absurdly effective scene with the the, the sun is starting to set, uh, the, the way the music is playing, the way the editing is taking place. All of it's just perfect. And you get the sense of, you know, I'm going to make you proud, right? He's going to redeem himself and, you know, get his son to be know who he is and all these things. You're feeling, yeah, I'm rooting for you, pal. But if you think about it for just one second, you go, wait a second. There's a court order that says he can't be there. That must be that he was violent, yeah. right? So, like, you just have to make sure you don't think ever. And the film, on an emotional level, will carry you through to ultimately being very much committed to it, right? You can lose... In the course of this film, what, uh, Paris gets destroyed. I think, I looked it up, Paris had a little over 2 million people living it at the time. Assuming that they evacuated at least even half of it, that means you have still over a million people that die in the course of this movie. And yet you don't feel it at all, right? Because no. it's so swept up in its optimism and its sense of we're going to do things and we're going to make things work and whatever the sacrifice, whatever the 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 requirements we make it and we come out on top right and that's what you feel uh when you watch this particular film even bruce willis's death at the end doesn't feel like a defeat or like a loss it's like wow what a hero what a what a man who beat the odds what he he's victorious even in his death and so that's what the film can do because it has such an unabashed optimism and celebration of americana well, it, it sets a lot of things up to to pay off later too. I, I mean, you mentioned Will Patton's kid and and the fact that they're reunited at the end, and uh, Bruce Willis sends um, 
Billy Bob Thornton, his mission patch, you know, after they had the conversation about him wanting to have that patch on his shoulder. It knows how to pluck at your heartstrings, right? And when when all that's really coded in John Schwartzman's very beautiful cinematography, I mean, some of those shots, kind of Americana shots, are just gorgeous, you know. Uh, and it it really does... It's somewhat shameless in that regard, but uh, I think it's important to look at how this film is reflecting society at that time, that pre-9-11 era that, that you had mentioned. And, you know, disaster films frequently are reflections of society at any given moment, right? The, the political, the cultural climate, and a lot of our anxieties as a society can manifest in, in our cinema. And this clearly is a manifestation of that, that American pride and that American confidence. And, and it's, it's not ashamed of that at all, right. For, for better, or for worse. And, and I think, you know, the celebration of the working man too is, is definitely something worth, worth mentioning here. And, and you know, we probably should get into the cast. You talked about Bruce Willis. I mean, you believe that Bruce Willis is the guy for this job, right? Totally sells it. He's bringing his history in action films to this picture already. Uh, very charismatic. Uh, there, there's a real sense of humor to his character at times. And the interplay between him and Ben Affleck as sort of this estranged father-son slash business relationship <laughs> has its own complexity to it as well. And, and this gang of misfits, they all have their individual personalities and, and it really is a who's who cast, right? I mean, Will Patton, you mentioned uh, Steve Buscemi and William Fickner's in this as well as, as the air force Colonel. We've got Owen Wilson, Michael Clark Duncan. Yeah. Peter Stormare shows up as a crazy Russian on, on mirror. I mean, I, you even got Keith David in the mix. Jason Isaacs has a little part. I mean, there's just a lot of great little bit parts throughout this whole film. You even have Charlton Heston doing the opening narration, you know? <laughs> and, I, I mean, what, what's not to love about that? It, it, there, there are so many little quotable moments and bits in here that just consistently make me laugh. You know, Billy Bob Thornton, his... Uh, he he works as the mission control guy. Uh, you wouldn't think on paper that that would work, right? Billy Bob Thornton is as the the intellectual engineer slash. Uh, you think of Ed Harris in Apollo thirteen, right? You think of a guy like that, and and he he definitely sells it, and it and it works. And I, one of my favorite scenes is all the engineers sitting around at the table going through their, their little theories and ideas, you know, about the solar sails and just the, the editing, the pacing of that, that scene, I, I think is so brilliantly done. A lot of jump cutting, right? And, and again, this is where your brain is filling in the gaps, but it, it, it just hits these comedic beats yet. It has this dramatic weight to it because you feel the urgency of the time, uh, that is limited and the fact that they, they need to come up with a plan as soon as possible, something that's actually going to work. And even though the plan is completely ludicrous, 
we feel like, okay, this is something that's actually going to happen uh, or that could happen, that could work, especially with Jason Isaac's description of, you know, closing your fist around a firecracker. Another great little, great little moment. Uh, I, I've used that joke <laughs> once or twice, actually, about not being able to open your ketchup bottles for the rest of your life. J- just the perfect way to describe that, right? And those little bits throughout the film are very memorable, and and it's a big source of enjoyment for me when I watch this. Well, I, I'd like to just hit on that point there with the way in which the cast really makes this movie work because that's I think why I am so willing to go with this film they make me believe the characters they make me believe the rules that are being set up here obviously it's all ludicrous I mean even yeah the concept that there would be some kind of form of gravity on this would not be the case the the asteroid w- is not big enough and it's not gonna be rotating it fast enough that they would be able to get onto it and have even a least bit of gravity right so but they, they explain just a little bit that you need to make me say, okay, in this world, this is what it is, right? And it's it's sold on the conviction of the performances and great casting all around. Uh, even Liv Tyler, you know, who at this time was a fairly untested actress, mm-hmm. uh, hadn't had a lot. She's probably mostly known just as the daughter of Steven Tyler, who does the song, the Oscar-nominated song from this movie, right? Uh, but, I mean, that's all really great because you just get caught up in right a se- and within seconds like I know everything I need to know about this and that's not a, a, a easy thing to accomplish to hit home on the point like I mentioned at the beginning here Deep Impact takes tons of time in its movie to explain what's going to happen when this asteroid hits right uh, whereas this film gives you clear visuals to think of what's going to happen right so that's just Morgan Freeman talking about, well, this will hit, and then it'll cause a tsunami, and then it'll move here, and then this city will be destroyed, and that city will be destroyed, right? Or something like that. Which, yeah, probably a lot more, I guess, true to what might be said if you're doing this in real life. But just Jason Isaacs telling you, hey, if you drill in and blow this up, it'll be just like this visual image. Like, oh, I can think of what that's like. I can think of how this works, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and so the... The viscerality of it isn't just in the filmmaking. It's actually in the screenwriting, and it's actually in the acting, right? Um, As much as we might focus in on the assault of your senses through the special effects, the editing, the cinematography, the story is just designed to be told fast. And it it would be hard for us to sit with any of these things for too long because then you start necessarily thinking about them more, right? So... Quick image. What does it look like if you're going to try to blow this up? Oh, it's like your hand having a firecracker inside of it. Boom. Done. Got it. And now move on to the next thing. And I think that's why the film is so successful. Um, And just the way it just sets up some rules about how drilling is supposed to work. And then you go, okay, great. Awesome. Got it. We go in. You know, Uh, the comet is the scariest thing in the world, right? Okay, got it. Good. That's all I need to know, right? It's going to be super hot, super cold. (laughs) It's that's all I need to know. I don't need to really have somebody sit down and try to elaborate on any of this for me. I just need you to tell me basic concept. Move on. That's what the film is great at. And I would just like to highlight Billy Bob Thornton's performance in this among the cast. I think a lot of people are very good, but he in particular, I think is given a hard task because he doesn't do much. Uh, he's just kind of talking. Um, 
but he as as worth noting, he just I think his movie right before this was Sling Blade. Uh, so he had just kind of become known as a serious actor at the same time uh, that this movie was coming out. And so it was a little bit of a like uh, a prestige casting choice. Like, hey, let's get some talented people to to elevate the production uh, by having him in it. But just the simple fact that it's like, yeah, I've got my, uh, you know, and I think it was his idea that, hey, why don't we have this guy be that he couldn't go up there because he's got the cripple, right? He, he, yeah. He's got the, the actual handicap. And so, okay, you know, like that little just small adjustment to his character makes you relate to him, makes you feel for him. Uh, the fact that he is able to be the the pivot between blue collar and full blown NASA. Like he's the one that sells you on the concept. Like I don't need to have these people be perfectly able to be psychologically capable of the job. I just need them to physically survive and get in there to do the drilling. Right. Cause that gives you the audience, the permission to say, okay, good. I don't have to really worry about the psychological eval. I can just think of it as comedic relief as we're going towards the eventual, uh, mission that we have before us. So I really want to just single out Billy Bob Thornton for praise. Not that he's the only one that's good here, but he's really effective in his role. Yeah, absolutely. And and really, just the sound design, the theatricality of the visuals. I, you know, I think about it, the asteroid is clearly the most menacing <laughs> looking thing possible, right? It just got all these jagged edges and and it even growls at various points in the film. It's not just one asteroid. It's all these chunks and all these things flying at you. And there's like a, a smoke cloud around it. I mean, it's ridiculous, right? There's just everything is cranked up to 11. And Well, and this asteroid also is able to create sound in space. And it's also yeah. able to create fire in space. So yeah. uh, a lot of people <laughs> like to make fun of that now. I should note, I think it's a little unfair to attack this movie because of having sound in space. That used to be really common. Um, that movies set in outer space still had alien has sound yeah, in space. It still, it still is. I, I'd say it's more common than not to have sound in space. Right. Well, even like something like gravity, while it's, it's, it's showing that there's no sound. It like has the sound on the track within her head. You know, yeah. within her headset or whatever. So yeah. I just I think that's sometimes a little bit of an unfair criticism that people direct at it. Uh, yes, it makes no sense that there could be a fireball explosion when the um, International Space Station gets hit at the start of the film, right, with that meteor shower. But uh, it still is like, eh, whatever. It's just a kind of a fun, fun action movie. Yeah, and, and the shuttles are flying around like like Star Trek ships, you know, like <laughs> they would not have have enough fuel to do that kind of maneuvering. But yeah, you can't sit there and, and think about the scientific plausibility of all this. I mean, it just it's it's really missing the point. Uh, but I, well, I do even think just the well, I was just gonna say even the storytelling. So it's Billy Bob says we need the best deep sea drillers. There are, right? Yeah. And then with the U.S. government is out in the South China Sea taking Bill uh, or uh, taking uh, Bruce Willis. How do they know he's the best? Do they have, like, does our federal government have a list of deep sea drillers to know who's the best? Do they have a ranking system? It's like, that's absurd in itself, but it's like, they just have it, right? Then they're out there, evidently within, like, minutes. 
he flies to D.C. or to Houston, rather, uh, with what it, the film makes it seem like within the same day, right? Because it's it's this timeline of how long you have to get ready. I mean, and then he can get his crew to join him, fill them in. It's like all that in of itself should take at least a week. Yeah. Right. And so, and the film just kind of like it's within an afternoon, right? So it's absurd. I mean, it is an absurd movie, but it is it is still nonetheless an effective movie. Uh, we haven't talked about Affleck much uh, in this film. What What do you think of him? You know me, Matt. I'm on Team <laughs> Affleck. <laughs> I like him. By the way, I did see a connection. Uh, we talked about at the end of uh, The Kid Brother last month, if we could find a connection between the movies. Yeah. Bruce Willis chasing around, shooting him at him on the rig, kind of similar to the abandoned boat scene with the chasing around there. That, so, that is true, yeah. There continuity continues, so we'll see We'll see if we can keep this going from month to month. Um, <laughs> no, he's, he's... I know there's some people who really like to hate on Bad Affleck, but I really just enjoy him as a performer. And he's very likable. He's handsome. Uh, obviously, he's perpetually dripping with sweat as... I mean, I, I, on the audio commentary, Everybody he talks is. about how... Everybody yeah, that is. they... That, on this film, Ben Affleck said that they would just drench them with Vaseline all the time. <laughs> so that it just they made them look like they were always constantly sweating. But you know, he and Liv Tyler just looked like a very sexy couple, right? And you just kind of go, "All right, isn't that nice?" You know, cool kids. Now he's given some of the most idiotic things. I mean, the the courting scene with the animal crackers. Is yeah. right up there with uh, Anakin Skywalker trying to make a pass at Padme with sand, you know? Yeah, it's, but, it's pain. Pain. <laughs> but at the same time, like, I'm okay with it. You know, when she asks the question, is there anybody else doing this exact same thing right now? I'm thinking, well, obviously, I hope not, because who the hell tries to court a woman with animal crackers? <laughs> but I kind of, you, you just like, you like that they're just being playful and having this silly pillow talk, right? Um, so yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm on, I'm on team Affleck for sure. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's good. You know, he's good in the film. I, I don't have a problem with him. Uh, I, I've never quite understood the hate. I, I think he's a talented actor. I think he's a talented director. I'm, I'm more mixed on him as a director. I don't think he has his own voice as a director, but he's I mean, perfectly not yet, functional. But yeah. He's, he's, he's kind of a journeyman director. Yeah. I, I see him as more than an auteur, but he's, I, I, I think his, his whole personal life overshadows his talent, unfortunately. And that's probably the main, one of the main reasons why, um, he gets a lot of grief, but, um, we, we should mention, well, we can get in the criterion release at this point. We should mention, well, before the, we do, can we go into the special effects? Sure, that's fine. I, I mentioned them a bit, but but go ahead and expand on it. Well, I think one of the things that sometimes we kind of forget about is how much this was a blending of practical versus and digital effects, right? So much of yeah, it that was all in-house digital. This is kind of that little pivot point where you have a um, CGI taking over, but it hasn't been able to do everything yet. So mm-hmm. obviously CGI really starts to come to life with Terminator 2 and Jurassic Park before this. And then by the time we get through 
Lord of the Rings a little bit after this, it's taking over all of special effects. But I think why these visual effects really work for the most part is that there is a lot of stuff that's being done practically. Uh, that that shot, for example, with the destruction of Paris, uh, which might be the longest shot in the entire film. I think it's like 11 seconds. So, I mean, for a Michael Bay movie, that's uh, that's like, you know, Citizen Kane length of a, a shot right there. Um, but Yeah. Um, it it bumped know, the up the average that, of everything else by yeah, significantly. It, it tells you just how many shots had to be less than a second if the average is still 2.3, right? <laughs> um, but... Like the all the 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 debris being kicked up, that was a live action explosion, right? So they actually mm-hmm. went created a whole rig, and you, there's a really cool little feature in the Criterion DVD about how they did that, right? Where they created these circles with lining explosives, and how careful they had to be about getting it just so, and then the kind of sand they needed to put in to create the effect of a real debris from the Earth's crust being blown up. Right, and then how they layered that on top of another image, on top of another image, and then added some CGI to create the the camera shake and the the gargoyles were actually real gargoyles that they had built, but then they had to add a little bit of the vibration within them. So it's a perfect, uh, I think, encapsulation of just a, a a moment of transition that was taking place in special effects, which had been pr- predominantly practical. And now have become predominantly digital. And I think this film has a lot more practical effects in it than people might realize because it was the technology hadn't quite taken over yet. And I think it actually is to its benefit because I think if Michael, Michael Bay had made this movie 10 years later, the action would have been completely indiscernible, right? The, the destructive capabilities of showing a city get hit uh, would have been so much greater uh, that you would have ultimately been unable to even, I think he couldn't resist himself being able to to go and zip around and show all these people flying this way, that way, and this building collapsing into that building. And, you know, you just had only one shot you could sort of show, but it's so much more effective because of that. Yeah, there's some great model work in this too. I mean, the um, the shuttle's, at least I think were physical models. I'm sure part of the Mir space station was, and, and there was a great, great combining of, of digital and practical, uh, miniatures for sure. So definitely worth, worth mentioning that. Uh, and just the, the design, you know, like the X 71 shuttle, just a great design, right? It's, it's recognizable. It looks like a space shuttle, but it's just, it's like the sexy version of the space shuttle. Right. And, uh, it has darker colors and it's got, you know, winglets on it and it's got all sorts of extra boosters and it's, it's a Michael Bay space shuttle and the way they, they sell that, you know, that reveal, which is a miniature, uh, works, works really, really well. Yeah. It should be noted. The production designer for this is Michael White, who sadly died not long after, I think he died in 99. So this is mm-hmm. one of the might be the last completed work he ever did as mm-hmm. a production designer, uh, but had done Crimson Tide, for example, had done The Rock, Alien Three. I think he was part of the production crew, but I don't, he wasn't the actual production designer. But obviously, he had a great visual sense, uh, and I yeah. think, you know, for example, that that Mission Control Center, it is like well, that isn't how the, any of these would ever actually be built 
in real life, but for a movie, it works very nicely. Yeah, absolutely. And you never doubt what it is. I mean, you you know full well that yes, this is NASA, even though that's not actually how you would build a room like that in real life. Well, we can get on to Criterion's release here. So um, this is a pretty early release for Criterion. This is spine number 40, and it was only on DVD. It's a two-disc set, non-anamorphic, currently out of print. Director's cut? Yeah, there's a director's cut. It's pretty easy to find still. Very, very minimalistic cover on it uh, with the old Criterion typeface. And, I mean, it's a stacked special edition. You know, there's there's a lot of uh, great stuff on here. You, you mentioned the director's cut. And there are two audio commentaries. I, we should just get in, into the the most notorious commentary, the, the one that includes Ben Affleck, who's <laughs> quite cutting in his, his analysis of this film. Uh, it, I think you mentioned that you want to go into that one a bit. Definitely. Well, first, I, I like that this is from an era where DVDs and their special features were not super manufactured by the studios yet, right? Yeah, this is uh, the golden they, era here for sure. Yep. I don't think anybody was even putting the little disclaimer saying the views of the people providing commentary are their own, right? That Even that little legal disclaimer wasn't being included at this point. So... It's it's very much was the wild west of uh, home vi- home video at that moment in time, um, yeah. I I very much love that commentary track, particularly Ben Affleck's element, but even Michael Bay. Michael Bay is being very blunt about how he didn't like certain things in the script, and he he doesn't say a person's name, but he, like you go, oh, he's obviously talking about J.J. Abrams right now. Like yeah, he he had a, a phone meeting with J.J. Abrams where he said this isn't working and you need to completely redo it. Right, so. It does give you a much more realistic view of how films are made that I think current special features often do. And the Ben Affleck stuff in it is absolutely hilarious. I mean, he he's clearly a it, it gets to the point that I think a lot of people sometimes don't understand. These the people making these movies are not dumb, right? They know there are plot holes. They know there are yeah. things that don't make logical sense. They're aware of the fact that it's easier to train an astronaut to drill than it is to train a driller to be an astronaut, right? The whole point of the movie is it's not reality, right? I think it's fun to hear somebody be so upfront about it, have fun with it, and realize that they were trying to make an entertaining film. And that's what I love uh, listening to this audio commentary uh, because everybody in it is aware of what they're doing and they're they're giving us some insights into filmmaking but they're also having fun, right? They're just being natural. And that's not something you really get anymore in anything, it seems. I mean, whether it's interviews or whether it's uh, actual commentaries, if the, to the extent that people even do them anymore, right? That little era is basically gone from home movies, uh, from home entertainment, I should say. Yeah, it was this golden period, you know, late 90s, early 2000s. He had that little window of just these stack special edition Releases, two disc releases, uh, really went in depth, very unfiltered takes. I mean, we, we talked about some other examples in the past. I mean, the Limey commentary comes to mind, and um, you know that that series of Fox two disc two disc uh, special editions with sort of the holographic covers, and 
yeah, it, it's a bygone era for sure. And, and this, this release really fits into that. And you mentioned some of the featurettes on the, spe- the special effects and uh, there's deleted scenes, there's a gag reel. You know, even if you don't think that this is a stellar piece of cinema, I think there's a lot to learn from the uh, the supplemental material here. And and even though it's out of print, like I mentioned, this this release is readily available. I mean, get it used for around ten bucks, I think, uh, on secondary markets. So definitely worth seeking out if um, if people haven't seen it. Well, I think it's. Another thing, just we could talk about this with Criterion in general. There's a value, I think, for Criterion to put popular films into it. Obviously, there's a financial value, uh, but I mean, there's also a fact that, and we can. I'm not. I'm not going to jump the gun on our final question here about whether this belongs yet. But I mean, the point is, Criterion now, I think, would never even entertain this as a possibility. When yeah. it came out, it was not a shocking idea that this or something like it would be in the Criterion Collection, right? Because I think there was an overall openness in the in the company itself at the time to include things like this in the collection and to see that they have a place in the collection. Uh, whether you think this specific one does or doesn't is another question. But, I mean, this kind of film, there's no reason disaster films that are popular and that are uh, a part of the culture should be just excluded from the Criterion Collection because they are part of cinema. And I think that that would be something I wish the collection would regain more. I think there might be a little bit of an effort of that. You know, uh, there's been re- uh, announcement of certain films coming out in the upcoming months. La Bamba, for example, uh, is one that's coming out uh, in September this year. And that's not, you know, like a special kind of genre. It's just a, a biopic, right? So I think that, they might be trying to retrieve some of that, but I just appreciate that in the early days of Criterion, there was no real compunction with including something by Michael Bay. Yeah, I think you have to really think of this as almost an extension of the Criterion Laserdisc era, you know, since this is such an early release for them. Because on Laserdisc, they, they released a bunch of stuff that people forget about, you know, and it wasn't necessarily, you know, considered to be the great peaks of uh, of cinema in terms of quality. So uh, it, it's interesting, and I think it's important to remember, you know, when this was released uh, chronologically as far as the Criterion Collection is, uh, is concerned. I would just say I would I would love to have this be something that they would actually upgrade. I mean, they're doing a lot of upgrades of t- old titles, right? And yeah. if they were to upgrade this, it would think it'd be a good sign to people that they aren't ashamed of some of their past decisions. I I have a sense that people in Criterion, you know, j- just to get back to your initial write-in uh, from the Chat GPT, probably would be like, <laughs> "Oh, this is embarrassing." I doubt it was at the time. I doubt anybody sitting around there was embarrassed by it at the time. And I'd say, yeah. hey, you know, if you can get, I, I get Disney has the rights to it, but I mean, if you could get Disney to say, can we re-release this director's cut in 4K? I, I would celebrate that um, because I think that, that that would show that they're not embarrassed by the choice and that this kind of film isn't something they consider beneath them. 
Yeah, there's no 4K release yet that I'm aware of, so I think it's a good opportunity, and uh, that would be that would be great if they had the courage to do that. So I, I would I would celebrate that as well. All right, the big question, Nate. Here we go. Does Armageddon belong in the Criterion Collection? I would probably come across as a little bit of a hypocrite after that last little moment I, or little bit I shared there, but I'm oh, going to no. say no. <laughs> <laughs> and not because it's a criticism of the film, but because I don't know that it was quite as important. I think the stuff that was going to happen in cinema would have happened even without this. Uh, Michael Bay was a successful director. He'd have kept making films the way he did, even if he didn't make this. So I don't think that it like, oh, this changed his voice by any means. Uh, the the movement into CGI was already happening. If you're going to pick a, a 90s disaster film that belongs in the collection, I think it's actually Independence Day uh, more than it is Armageddon. Yeah. So I would say no. As much as I love it, as much as I wouldn't mind them re-releasing it, I would not put it in there myself. I, I'm forced to agree with you. I, I went back and forth on this because you, know, you think about important films and disaster films, blockbusters. Uh, that's generally the argument for the the inclusion of this in, in the Criterion Collection, right? A lot of people criticize it, but a lot of people say, hey, you know, this genre needs to be represented, and this is one of the classic, quote-unquote, examples of of the disaster genre or or the blockbuster genre, if if you can call that a genre. But I I would agree with you. I think there are probably better examples. Uh, Independence Day had a bigger impact. I would say. I think there's an argument to be made that this film did usher in stylistically a very new way of presenting action films and blockbusters. But I'm I'm hard pressed to to say that it's worthy of inclusion as as much as I do. Enjoy the film, you know, for what it what it is. Well, thanks everyone for for listening and for enduring our heaping of praise on <laughs> on Michael Bay's Armageddon. Our discussion next month will be on another Hollywood quasi classic. Ridley Scott's Thelma and Louise. Thanks again, and keep collecting.